Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to finish up uh, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians today. Father, I come before you now. We've focused our attention on grief uh, this evening uh, with these prayer requests, and I pray that each person who has lost someone uh, will open themselves up to the comfort that you want to supply, that they will realize that um, mourning is not a bad thing. It is a healthy thing so long as they don't mourn as those who have no hope. We have hope because of Jesus. We have hope because of Easter. Um, Easter is not about the bunnies and the eggs and the chocolate and kids in, in dresses and, and little suits, but it is about the resurrection of Christ who gives us the hope because he beat death. And uh, that is the, the Christian hope. That's why we don't need to worry about our lives here on earth. We just entrust ourselves to you, and we know that you're going to take care of us as we believe that you're going to take care of all of those who have entrusted their lives to you. And that's why we want to be witnesses. We want to share the gospel with people so that they will receive uh, the gift of eternal life. So open up your word tonight. Help us to receive it. Be transformed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, so uh, we're going to go back up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to read through these verses. I read through these last week, but we're not going to go back through all the ones we went through last week. I just want to put us in context here. Uh, this is verses 18 through 25, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. And this is the ESV, which will be different than the translation that I gave you all. Um, this is what the English Standard Translation says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All right. So we already spoke uh, about uh, the relative understanding of this word foolish, okay? Men, human beings, in other words, are calling the gospel foolish, the message of the cross foolish. That doesn't mean it is foolish, but that's what they've branded it, that's what they've labeled it. And we have all sorts of different responses to the cross and to the gospel today, and I shared with you uh, a bit of uh, controversy surrounding that. Uh, you know, there are those that want to reject the cross. Uh, our Muslim friends don't believe Jesus was crucified. There are various Christians who do not believe that uh, the crucifixion was something that was done for you and for me, as in for our sin, I should, I should say. Um, they don't believe in the theory of atonement called penal substitution, as in penalty, P-E-N-A-L, substitution, which is what we normally preach in church, right? That Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. He turned away the judgment and the wrath of God with his death on the cross. And then in his res resurrection, he destroyed death 
and that's where we have our hope. But there are those who don't want to see sin as that bad. There are those that uh, think that uh, this idea of a blood sacrifice harkens back to pre-Christian times and so forth. But I think rather we should understand that rather than understanding that uh, a blood sacrifice is a pre-Christian idea, we should understand that the blood sacrifice of the Old Testament was actually uh, a, an, an idea that pointed forward to Christ because the scripture says, uh, going back to in fact the days of Noah, it says that the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. Therefore, the shedding of blood is the giving up or the taking, if you shed someone else's blood, of life. When someone takes life, they owe a life. That's all there is to it. That's, that's the law. And that's pre-Mosaic law, right? It says in Genesis chapter 9 that if a man sheds blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. It's that simple. Um, if someone is granted clemency or mercy, uh, if their life is not taken after taking a life, then that's, that's mercy, right? That means they're not getting what they deserve. Christ gave his life for your life. Why did he do that? Because you owe a life. You owe a debt. The soul, the other thing the Old Testament says is the soul that sins, it will surely die. That's why everybody dies. When we say, well, our friend Jonathan died in a rollover accident, um, or your friend died recently by hitting a, you know, a pillar or a, a highway obstacle. Um, we're, we're not describing why they died. We're describing how they died. But ultimately, the why of death is because all of us owe a debt of death. Now, what will happen when we pass through death is determined by what we do with Jesus. So it is imperative that in the midst of all of this transition that we're finding in our culture, this anti-Christ approach to culture, that we continue to hold on to the gospel and we just teach people the good news and we let the Holy Spirit convict them and we let them receive that or not receive that. I don't need to get into a big debate with people over uh, you know, theories of atonement. You just need to know that Jesus died for your sins and rose and you need to receive that. You need to believe that or you don't have the hope of eternal life. That's another thing I say in funerals. You know, I, I don't try to put people in heaven or hell because I've uh, done funerals of uh, people who we're uncertain of their position with Christ. We don't know what they believed or what they thought about Jesus. And I try to help the people at the funeral understand that you and I are not in a position to judge this person. But I tell them, the only hope I can offer you is that you put your faith in Jesus. Nobody else has mastered death. Nobody else conquered death. Nobody else beat death. The only way you can know that you're going to transition from this life into eternal life is to receive that gift of eternal life from Jesus. And we hope and we pray in a, in a case of someone whose uh, faith was um, undetermined or who seemed to kind of be back and forth about their faith or who seemed to have drifted away from faith, those sorts of things. Listen, we, we pray that you know they made things right with the Lord, but we're not the judge. I'm not the judge. 
But what I would say is the only hope you're going to have to ever see someone on the other side of this life is to put Christ in your life, right? This idea of, you know, I'm going to party in hell with my friends. There's going to be no party in hell. Hell is a place of eternal destruction. And by the way, Satan's more afraid of it than you are. He's got more sense than you and I do. That's why he's trying to torment believers all the way up until that point, because he knows there's no hope there, right? This idea, uh, uh, Paradise Lost is a magnificent, uh, epic poem. But this idea that, you know, Satan is going to establish this kingdom, this anti-kingdom in hell, right? As I quoted on Sunday morning, this rapper uh, is using Nike shoes. Apparently Nike was not behind that campaign, but this rapper bought all of these shoes and, and created this brand called the Satan Shoes. And he was using Milton's Paradise Lost as a way to, uh, or he or someone else, because there are Air Jordans that are the same way. They've taken them and they've, they've put pentagrams on them and all this other horrible stuff. And, but they're using Milton to advertise it, right? And the statement that Satan makes in the, the second major chapter in Paradise Lost um, is uh, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Satan is not reigning in hell, kids. Not even. First of all, hell is not a place where anybody is currently. People die and they transition into this realm that the Old Testament calls Sheol, right? The realm of the dead. And the dead wait judgment day apart from Christ, apart from God, or in the presence of God. Jesus said what to the thief on the cross? Today, what? You will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. And then we have the account of Jesus bringing the host of captives from death, right? with him after the resurrection. So when you and I have faith in Christ, we transition into the presence of God. Those that do not are in a place of darkness and separation and fear, waiting judgment. On the other side of judgment, there is a judgment, right? Jesus gave the, the parable of the, uh, the sheep and the goats, right? puts the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and the goats are cast away from his presence. The sheep come into his presence. And then we have Jesus stating again and again, numerous times, uh, talking about Gehenna. Well, Gehenna was uh, a, a name for a valley outside of Jerusalem, the Hinnom Valley, right? Gehinnom, the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And in Jesus' day, it was this horrible place. It was essentially uh, like a garbage dump and a graveyard combined, but not a graveyard where people are buried respectfully. Basically, anybody who was crucified was taken off the cross and thrown out. And they would be thrown out into this garbage dump and the dogs would eat them. And the statement about Gehenna that Jesus quotes, in fact, in Mark, is Gehenna is the place where uh, the worm, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Because what was happening in this valley all the time is these, these rotting bodies and this garbage that was thrown out of Jerusalem and the parts of sacrifices from the temple that were not uh, either used or burned, that, that all that 
filth and evil was thrown out there into that valley. That was Jesus' image of hell. And then we get to Revelation, and Revelation talks about a, uh, a lake of fire burning with brimstone and sulfur, right? That's a horrible, horrible image, but it's a place of destruction. These are, these are, this represents eternal destruction. This represents taking the penalty for your own sin if you don't choose to put your faith in Christ. So when I die apart from Christ, there's no anti-kingdom where I'm going to be, you know, partying with my other non-Christian friends and the devil is going to be playing the music or something. Uh, you know, he's going to be playing heavy metal or, you know, some kind of hideous satanic rap or something like that. No, uh, Satan knows what, what's coming. And he wants to deceive people into believing that this is a great place and he's the captain, the king, the whatever. And that's not the case at all. So it's imperative that we preach this message of the cross, this gospel of Jesus, because that's how people will be saved from eternal separation from God in hell, period. There's no other hope. Now, again, I talk to people, I do a funeral, whatever. I'm not, I'm not the judge. I'm not throwing people in hell. All I can tell you is the only positive hope I can offer you, the only assurance I can offer you that you will spend eternity with God is that you put your faith in Jesus. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God, saved from hell, right? And saved from this wicked world. That's the only hope that I can offer anybody. That's the message of the cross. Well, that sounds like foolishness to people today, just like it did back then. It sounded like foolishness to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, right? The, to the educated, to the cultured, foolishness. And uh, if we get that far, I've got an extended quote that uh, describes one of the, the cultured literary people of uh, the Roman world and that, that person's perception of Christianity, and it's not terribly favorable. In fact, it's horrible, <laughs> his perception. But we're, we're getting back to that time where even people who would profess Christianity are rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting the cross. They're rejecting the Bible, right? And they're rejecting significant portions of the Bible, not peripheral issues, not debatable issues, but central issues, as I said, like the atonement, like the resurrection, like the deity of Jesus. You don't get to reinvent Jesus but people have been doing it since the first century, right? And we got to get away from that. All right, so let's go down here. I want to find where we were uh, last time. Okay. Um, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So the demand for miracles is insatiable. That means it's never satisfied. The Israelites in the wilderness saw many miracles and still failed to believe. In Jesus' time on earth, people were always looking for him to perform a miracle. The religious leaders asked for a sign even after the Lord had shown them many. Uh, you see that in John 2.18, uh, when Jesus cleansed the temple, they said, show us a sign. What's the proof that you have the authority to do this, right? And again, we see this in Matthew 12.38, where they come to him and they say, uh, teacher, we want you to show us a sign. Religious people still chase after miracles, but Jesus' answer now will be the same as it was. And here's from Matthew 12, 38 through 40, the passage that I uh, was 
talking about just a second ago. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus pointed then to the cross as the ultimate sign. But the cross was a horribly offensive thing to people back then. In fact, in the early days of Christianity, the cross was not used as a symbol of Christianity. In fact, the earliest paintings of Jesus aren't Jesus on the cross. The earliest paintings of Jesus are Jesus with a lamb across his shoulders as the good shepherd. The early Christians identified themselves not with the cross, but with the fish because they were fishers of men, because the cross was horribly offensive. Now, um, uh, I can't think of anything that would necessarily parallel that today. So I'm saying, okay, you know what? I can. The Nazi swastika. Yeah. Right. Now, nobody dies on the swastika, but it is horribly offensive. Yeah. Justifiably so. It represents a monstrous period in history, right? And apparently at the Republican National Convention, uh, some uh, intelligent, or I should say cunning, leftists looked at the design of the stage and said, oh, look, it's not a swastika, but look, it's, it's just like the symbol that you find on some Nazi uniform. I'm like, so you, you hate Nazis so much that you study them, is that it? And you found some sign on somebody's uniform. And so that is, yeah. So they basically uh, got uh, whatever the hotel was that was hosting Republicans to say, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with them and da, 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 da. The point being, there are certain symbols that are patently offensive. The cross wasn't just a symbol. It was a source of death. It was a, a form of execution that is unimaginable. In fact, we get our English word excruciating from the pain that someone um, experienced on the cross. Excruciato, from the cross, right? And you see in uh, the uh, Harry Potter world in those books, the so-called cruciatus curse. It's just using Latin. She's just a smart lady, uh, the author there. And it was a curse uh, that tormented the person, that tormented the victim. So this was, I won't go into the details here, although we're close to Easter and I could spend time doing that, but uh, crucifixion was a horrific form of death, but it wasn't just painful, it was shameful. People were stripped naked and left to hang there. And they were all beaten before they got on the cross. Now I had some amazing images that I had uh, on my phone for a while uh, amazing paintings that were done of Jesus on the cross. Um, but none of them made Jesus look as brutally beaten as he would have looked. And again, uh, you know, if you can stand it, you can deal with it. Watch Passion of the Christ. Because the Jesus on the cross there is probably closer to the Jesus that we know than any other film that I've seen. Uh, they just don't deal with it to the extent that it probably, uh, what it would have looked like, how horrific it would have been, uh, how painful, how, how ugly, and so forth. 
And even then, they have to put like a loincloth over, you know, the victim and so forth yeah. because we don't want to see a naked, naked person on there. But I'm telling you, man, that's not the way it was. It was a horrible, shameful way to die. This was the Roman Empire's way of getting people to obey. Because if you knew that what's going to happen to you if you don't listen to us is we're going to put you on a cross, you just did what they said, right? And this was one of the reasons why Christians uh, were able to stand up to Rome because they said, we know there's an afterlife. We know we're going there. And even if we have to go through the cross, we're just going to go through the cross early. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus was in fact saying, you need to be ready to be crucified for me. That's not what we want, right? Well, it was offensive. And the idea uh, of that offense also is found in the Old Testament because there is a part of the law that says anyone who is hanged on a pole or on a wood is cursed. So that means that when Jesus hung on the cross, he hung as the curse. He was, he received the curse of death. So they were offended because they said, you're saying that the Messiah was cursed. No, we're saying that the Messiah went through and took the curse and then overcame it. That's what we're saying. But all they could see was that someone died on the cross. And again, this is, I'm not trying to pick on our Muslim friends, but this is why Muslims to this day refuse to see Jesus on the cross. Uh, they don't believe he was the son of God, but they do believe that Jesus was a prophet and they don't believe that God would let that happen to their prophet. Um, so they have that same idea, maybe not to the same extent or extreme um, that the Jewish people did, but it is still something that is abhorrent to them, justifiably so. We wear crosses, but see, we wear a cross with the understanding that Jesus on the cross, Good Friday, Good Friday wasn't so good for Jesus. The only reason that Good Friday is good is because Jesus died for you. He who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He traded places with us, right? He died for you. He died as you on the cross. That's why the cross has become something beautiful, even though it was something horrific and ugly. But unbelievers among the Jewish people couldn't see past the reality that it was shameful and that it represented a curse, right? Um, and if you want to read a little bit about that, uh, Galatians chapter 3 is where you can go where it says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a wood. And that's why Jesus took the curse that we are due. And then uh, the result of that is that we gain the blessing of Abraham, that is we are justified by faith and we receive the Holy Spirit as the result of that justification. Right, so then he says that the cross is an, uh, is an offense to the Gentiles, excuse me, to the Greeks, excuse me, to the Jews. And he says it, uh, a stumbling block, he, he uses the term stumbling block, offense. And it is folly or foolishness to the Gentiles, right? So um, when Paul went to Athens, right, the center of the philosophical world, he witnessed firsthand the Greek hunger for wisdom, albeit in a degraded form of curiosity concerning novel ideas. This is what it says in Acts 17, 21. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just wanted to hear new ideas and discuss these new ideas. So Jesus stood before uh, the Epicurean philosophers, right? Um, who were, they were very this-worldly. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They were uh, oriented toward pleasure. And they were the primary ones that pushed back uh, against Jesus. Um, uh, William Barclay writes, quote, the Greeks sought wisdom. Originally, the Greek word sophist meant a wise man in the good sense. But it came to mean a man with a clever mind and cunning tongue, a mental acrobat, a man who with glittering and persuasive rhetoric could make the worst appear better, appear the better reason. Um, it meant a man who would spend endless hours discussing hair-splitting trifles, a man who had no real interest in solutions, but who simply gloried in the stimulus of the mental hike, quote unquote. The first century writer, Dio Chrysostom, describes the Greek wise men, quote, they croak like frogs in a marsh. They are the most wretched of men because though ignorant, they think themselves wise. They are like peacocks showing off their reputation and the number of their pupils as peacocks do their tails. Dio, Christ Dio Chrysostom, obviously this is a Christian preacher in the first century, talking about Greeks and talking about their approach to wisdom, talking about these sophists, these pretentious philosophers. Dio Chrysostom draws a picture of these so-called wise men and their competitions in Corinth itself. Ah, oh, at the Isthmian Games. You might hear many poor wretches of sophists shouting and abusing each other and their disciples, as they call them, squabbling, and many writers of books reading their stupid compositions, and many poets singing their poems, and many jugglers exhibiting their marvels, and many soothsayers giving the meaning of pro uh, prodigies, and 10,000 rhetoricians twisting lawsuits, and no small number of traders driving their several trades. The Greeks were intoxicated with fine words, and to them, a Christian preacher with a blunt message seemed a crude and uncultured figure to be laughed at and ridiculed rather than listened to and respected. Wow, it's getting that way again. Yeah. You know, men like Billy Graham were revered throughout the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to find cultural acceptance of Christianity the way you found it in the middle part of the 20th century. Not anymore. And I think there's a purpose behind that. God has a purpose behind that, mm -hmm. right? There's a sifting that's going on right now. There's a threshing that's going on right now. We're seeing the phonies from the real thing, right? We're seeing the wheat from the chaff. We're seeing the husk from the kernel. So I think that the entire 2020 experience, politically, protests, pandemic, it's been a sifting. And those of you that are sitting here listening right now and who've hung onto your faith, it's indicating that you're coming through and you're succeeding and you've allowed the Lord to speak to you, and you haven't allowed the world to sweep you away. I can't tell you that circumstances in the world are gonna get better, but I can tell you that Christ has you. Amen? Amen? You're secure, you're safe in Him. You need to stop paying attention to circumstances. You need to stop watching CNN <laughs> or MSNBC. I was just telling uh, one of you earlier, 
I think I was telling you earlier, yes. Uh, I have a news app on my phone called Ground News. G-R-O-U-N-D, ground. And it's got a symbol like uh, the ground that you would find in an electrical system, right? And it aggregates the news, uh, news reporting, major news sources across the world. And it shows you uh, stories that are being presented by the left, by the right, and in the center. And it uses news sources that you've never even heard of. See, we just pay attention to CNN, MSNBC, Fox. You know, maybe you've switched over and gotten something that's, you know, NPR or, you know, whatever. This presents stories that are, you know, Breitbart and, and, uh, and Reuters and AP. And, you know, so you've got this way to the right, way to the left and, and more centrist stuff. And it presents all of it. I love it. It's gotten me to pay attention to the news again because now I can go through and it presents all the stories. Because there are stories, if you just watch CNN and MSNBC, you are not seeing. There are stories, if you just watch Fox, you are not seeing. They're not going to present them because the people who watch them are going to get mad. So, um, oh, was it Newsweek, I think, finally came out and quoted um, Governor Abbott, who's been presenting statistics over the last three weeks. So he opened the, the, you know, the state up wide open and lifted the mask mandate. Now, again, that doesn't mean you, you, you're not allowed to wear masks, yeah, no. <laughs> right? It doesn't mean that a business cannot ask you to wear a mask. It means that the governor is no longer mandating that you wear a mask. That's all that means, mm-hmm. right? Um, he lifted that mandate. In the three weeks since that has happened, in fact, in the four weeks, starting with the week that he made the announcement at the beginning of March, infections have gone down, 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 down. That's contrary to what everybody expected. Right? Hospitalizations have gone down, 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 down. I read a report that said all of the COVID units at Parkland Hospital closed. You didn't see that in any news sources on the left? Right? On the other hand, there are other stories that you don't see on the right. Okay? But um, this story was picked up by Newsweek and finally presented and that is probably the first you know, hint of it that you've heard on the left. However, on the bad news side, uh, the head of the CDC is warning everybody that they need to continue mitigation strategies and they need to continue to be careful because there is another strain of COVID that is out there. And in certain states, unlike Texas, where our infections are going down, theirs are going up. And they think, again, they think a lot of stuff. We've seen this over the last year, right? But they yeah. think it's because this new, uh, uh, this new strain, right, yeah. of COVID is causing that problem. Well, one way or the other, as I've said, okay, you make your own decisions about being vaccinated. But you're, if you're at risk, you've got to decide, is it less risky for me to not be vaccinated and potentially get this and get knocked down and taken to the hospital or do I just deal with the potential side effects from the vaccine, right? If I were at risk, I would get the shot. I would probably pick Pfizer. Pfizer and Moderna are are both mRNA vaccines, but my observation and the anecdotes that I'm receiving are the people that are getting Pfizer are having fewer side effects than the people that are getting Moderna. But either way, 
you get the shot, your arm is sore for a day or two days or three days, right? Um, people have a fever for a day or two days or three days. They have flu-like symptoms for a period of time. This is the immune system attacking that protein that has been created in the body. So you've got to decide, is that worse? Or is the possibility of me with some sort of a compromised immune system, um, you know, being in one of the, uh, the at-risk ages, is that worse? You don't hear the right saying this, but I'm saying this. I'm not telling you to get the vaccine or not get the vaccine, but I am saying that it is highly recommended that you get this thing if you have, uh, if you are at risk. It's better to just deal with a few days of not feeling good and have immunity to this thing than be out there rolling the dice and get it and be one of the people that ends up in the intensive care unit on a ventilator. Now, I stay healthy. I've told you guys, getting the shot means your, your own immune system is stimulated to fight the virus. That means you have to have a healthy immune system, right? Yeah. And so you need to stay healthy. You need to eat healthy. You need to do something. You need to exercise, right? Because it's your body's immune system that God has given you that is fighting this. And this is also why if you've had COVID, you don't need to go and get vaccinated. You already have the immunity in your body. That's all the vaccine does. It does what your body has already done by being exposed to COVID. Now, I'm going to continue to pray through it. My personal decision, I'm not getting the vaccine at this point. I'm very healthy and I'm also very careful. Um, I don't wear masks everywhere I go, but if I'm in a close situation, I'm very, very careful. I don't want people that I don't know or even people that I do know. Um, terribly close to me. I, I had a, a young man come to church uh, Sunday, Eric. And uh, like Eric is the reason that I know Jonathan. Did you know that? Jonathan and Eric were in the same class. And he's the one that originally invited Jonathan to come and hang out with us. Even before Jonathan came to church, I was living in those apartments over there. And um, Eric and Eddie used to come and work out with me with another kid named Cooper. And uh, they invited Jonathan and they invited another kid whose name escapes me right, uh, Xavier. Okay, two kids that they knew from school, but they were both Eric's age. They were both in sixth grade. He was in sixth grade. That's when I met Jonathan, he was in sixth grade. And so we're over there and I'm teaching these, these little rugrats how to lift weights, right? And in fact, until, you know, we lost Jonathan, I would give him advice about weightlifting. I took him over to the weight room. I taught him how to lift weights. And he got big, right? So, um, you know, these, these little guys were, yeah, they were, they were something else, weren't they? Woo, they were difficult. Let's, let's get back to the text here. Um, people have different perceptions when it concerns the gospel. So for some people, it just sounds like religion, right? They don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, and uh, these days, it has a great deal to do with their political position. People filter everything through their political tribe, right? But what you and I need to do is we need to eschew that, okay? The right is not going to give you all the answers. The left is not going to give you all the answers. In fact, centrists will try to take from the right and left. They're not going to give you all the answers either. You need to pay attention to Jesus. You need to stop paying attention to your tribe. 
Well, my people, the way, you know, the people that I hang out with, we, we think this way. Well, my people, the people we hang out with. And so I've had people that have just deleted me on Facebook because I, I can't stand listening to that. I'm sorry. Right? I have muted people or whatever you call it, you know, for 30 days or whatever, when they just can't stop with the same stuff over and over and over. I, you can be inundated with such negativity, right? What we need to do, we need to, especially when it concerns Christ and when it concerns the Bible, we need to tune out all of these voices that are trying to tell us what we should think and what we should feel about the Bible. And we need to tune into the voices that tell us, or the, the, the voice that tells us the truth, okay? And I've said this because you're, you're going to, um, if you listen to voices on the right, you're going you're gonna to hear certain things and have a certain approach to the Bible. You listen to voices on the left, you're going to hear certain things, you have a certain approach to the Bible and, and the, the ethics and the morality of the Bible and so forth. And they're both going to have certain filters and that filter is going to leave out things, right? Think about a filter. If I put red lenses on these glasses, then I'm going to see the light in this room completely differently, aren't I? If I were wearing sunglasses up here, I would see the light in this room. Those sunglasses, those, those filters that I'm talking about here, that's the filter that you wear from your tribe, right? From your political position, whether that is, you know, QAnon, Trump, whatever, or whether that is the present, you know, people that are in power. It's, it doesn't matter. You and I need to expose ourselves to the word of God. We need to stop reading so many books that tell us what we should think and should feel about the Bible and read the Bible, mm -hmm. right? So uh, <laughs> an illustration that has been used by, by preachers for years, um, treasury agents train on spotting counterfeit currency by spending time with the real thing. So the most counterfeited currency is the $100 bill, right? The Franklin. And so if you don't ever handle a $100 bill and somebody hands you a fake, you're not going to know it's a fake, right? So that's why, you know, if you ever, uh, there, there, people do different things, you know, but people that pay cash, you may carry bigger bills with you, whatever. You hand somebody a $20 bill at a counter, they'll have like one of those little markers and they're, you know, because it, you know, it's going to tell them certain things. But see, a treasury agent would be able to just touch that and go, nope, that's not the real thing. That's counterfeit. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they spend so much time with the real thing. You need to read the Word of God. You need to stop listening to what everybody says about the Word of God. Commentaries are not a bad thing, but you know, there are commentators that they just have agendas. Yeah. And they're going to tell you what they want you to hear and what they believe and what their tribe says. We need to continue to look at the Word of God, right? So uh, that's the wisdom that we need to have. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So no matter what your background, religious, scientific, or somewhere in between, faith in Christ will change your thinking and the way you live your life. And there are very, very smart men throughout history and women who have been believers in Jesus, very strong believers in Jesus. You would assume today, and it's largely because of the way things are, are framed, the press, 
um, the scientists that are accepted or covered, you would assume that all of the smart guys have rejected the Bible. That's not really the case either, okay? Christ is our power to overcome all of life's obstacles and fears, and so we shouldn't let obstacles stand in the way of that, all right? Let's look at these final verses. I do not know if I'm gonna get through these, but I'm gonna try, eight minutes. Means I might be doing a lot of reading in my notes because that'll get through faster. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So today, as in the day the Corinthian letters were written, many people are enamored by celebrities. There are celebrity pastors now. There are celebrity worship leaders now, right? Um, it seems that getting your face in front of more people or airing your opinions and your lifestyle to the masses is believed to make you more important. There are celebrities that are celebrities because they have a lot of people that watch them on YouTube, right? Um, one young man, the young man that I checked with actually on Sunday before I, I brought up the, the Satan shoes illustration, I said, I said, hey, I said, uh, it was your son, actually. I said, Harry, I said, check on that to make sure that that's, you know, not some rumor or something. Yeah. So he went to like a shopping site. No, you can buy them. Oh, yeah, you can buy them. <laughs> wow, totally evil. And then he's like, oh yeah, and they got Air Jordans that are like that too. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> this is crazy stuff, right? Um, but these are celebrities that are promoting these things. So Harry told me that he's got a friend who did some video on, I don't know, Instagram or YouTube or whatever. It's basically like noises that they were making or something like that. That's had like 350,000 views. It's just crazy to me. It's just weird to me that you can become a celebrity by doing just the weirdest stuff now, but this is what people crave. And I've said this before, that's why people have stayed on Facebook since 2007. It's because of this. We're constantly looking for people to pay attention to us. And that's where MySpace failed. They were not able to come up with this, right? I mean, they, MySpace was cooler in a lot of respects. You could yeah. design your page. And for a long time, musicians stuck with MySpace even after Facebook came out, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're stuck with Facebook. And there's all these others that try to come out and they, they squashed Parler because, you know, Parler's it's their fault. By the way, I got on that and I tried to, it just didn't work for me. I don't know. And plus, the only reason I stay on Facebook is you guys. Yeah, apparently uh, the president or ex-president just launched his new social media. His oh, new social media? Oh, what's his uh, called now? I don't even the know. Trumpster. Well, in any event, <laughs> the, the, point is, the point is is we're looking for approval. We want followers. We want we want to be little mini celebrities is what, is what we want, okay? And so that's not who we are. Right? Bless all of y'all. Bless all of y'all. But that's not who we are. Okay? Um, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Guess what? That's you. 
Now, that doesn't mean God thinks you're foolish, but I will tell you this, if you're trying to make it out there in the world and you're holding on to your Christian faith, to biblical Christian faith, you're gonna have a whole lot of people that are gonna hate on you. Now, I've noticed through the four years of the previous administration, there's been a lot of separation on social media so that people who once interacted and interfaced just don't even hear each other anymore. So as a result, I don't have nearly as many negative comments as I would have experienced even a year ago before, before COVID. And some of it has been those people have, uh, have unfriended or deleted me and this, sometimes they've been disrespectful, so I've had to do the same with them. Now, I will never unfriend somebody or delete somebody because they disagree with me, as long as they disagree with respect. We can respectfully disagree. It really is possible. You don't have to agree to everything I say for me to pay attention to you, right? To be a friend to you. But you do have to be respectful because if you don't have respect, what else is there? I don't need a friend that's not respectful. Neither do you, okay? Um, but this is us. What he says here, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring about to nothing the things that are. But we don't want to be that. We want to be the cool. Right? We want to be, you know, we want to be well-liked. We want to be well-received. I, you know, I want more people to pay attention to me and say that I'm amazing and all these other things, right? Well, what and who is important in the world today is likely to be laughed at about in years to come. So if you think about who's cool today, right? Yeah. 10 years from now, they probably won't be. They'll be a joke. I look at the clothing styles that were popular when I was young. Now, a few of them are kind of turning around and making their way back. But you would laugh if I wore those clothes. If I wore my disco clothes, and I've done it before on Easter Sunday because I, that's how I got saved. That was, that was my dress-up outfit. Back then, I got saved on Easter Sunday of 1978. That was at the height of the disco era. So if you were cool, your dress clothes were angel flight, which meant if you could afford it, you'd have a silk shirt. But no, most people couldn't afford silk shirts. Silk was really expensive back then. So you'd have like this polyester fake silk shirt with these long collars mm -hmm. and you'd have a vest, polyester too. And you'd have these pants that were so tight that you could see the lines in your underwear under there. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. <laughs> and they were tight all the way down to your knee. And once they hit your knee, they went <laughs> and float out. And wait for it, even dudes wore platform shoes. <laughs> I got saved in three inch platform heels. I did. That was the cool thing to do. And I've tried to look for shoes that were like those. And I've got a pair that I bought just for the fun of it to try to do my testimony one Sunday. And they don't look anything like the ones that I wore. The ones that I wore were kind of like loaferish. They were brown. My angel flights were brown. My shirt was like blue. It, that's what I got saved in. That was cool. And now y'all are laughing. Because it's not cool anymore, right? But there are celebrities right now and people right now. And, and it's like, you know, that's the cool thing. Man, that's what we want to do. But in 10 years, they're not going to be cool. I forgot to mention there were hip huggers with a belt this wide. What now? Hip huggers? Were they low and your belt was this wide? 
that's a little earlier. That's actually that was that would have been that would have been early 70s. Early 70s. So, um, but anyway, I want to read this quote. Um, uh, William Barclay writes about this uh, this this uh, author in uh, the first, the second Christian century and what he thought of Christians. This sounds like what the Illuminati, right? The the cool people think of Christians today. Somewhere about the year 178, AD 178, that means uh, Anno Domini 178, that's the year of our Lord 178. So this would be about 150 years after Christ's death and resurrection. Celsus wrote one of the most bitter attacks upon Christianity that was ever written. It was precisely this appeal of Christianity to the ordinary people that he ridiculed. The ordinary people are who Paul said we are and who Christ has chosen to save. We're the ones that have chosen to receive the gospel. Listen to what this guy said. Um, hang on, let me find this quote. It was precisely this appeal to Christianity that the ordinary people that he ridiculed, he declared that the Christian point of view was, quote, let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible, for all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if any is a fool, let him come boldly. Of, of the Christians, he wrote, we see them in their own houses, wool dressers, cobblers, and fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. He said that the Christians were like swarms of bats or ants creeping out of their nests, or frogs holding a symposium round a swamp, or worms in conventicle in a corner of mud. That's what they thought of Christians. That doesn't sound too different from the assessment regarding conservative Bible-believing Christians today. Let me con uh, conclude this quote by Barclay and then we'll be done. It was precisely this that was the glory of Christianity. In the empire, there were 60 million slaves. In the eyes of the law, a slave was a living tool, a thing and not a person at all. A master could fling out an old slave as he could fling out an old spade or hoe. He could amuse himself by torturing his slaves. He could even kill them. For slaves, there was no such thing as marriage. Even their children belonged to the master as the lambs of the fold belonged to, not to the sheep, but to the shepherd. Christianity made people who were things into real men and women, more into sons and daughters of God. It gave self-respect to those who had no respect. It gave life eternal to those who had no life. It told them that even if they did not matter to others, they still mattered intensely to God. It told people who were worthless in the eyes of the world that in the eyes of God, they were worth the death of his only son. Christianity was and still is the most uplifting thing in the whole universe. Amen? Amen. So remember that when you hear the naysayers, when you hear the haters who are turning against Christianity today because Jesus is the one that saves us and he is the one that gives us value. All right. Appreciate you guys for coming and I appreciate all of you guys for listening tonight. God bless.